either going to be with the Giants or, or the some A's. American League team. Yeah, but uh, that thing, that sounds fantastic. But yeah, no, that it's definitely going to be interesting. And you, as an A's fan, you are in favor of oh, it. Oh, absolutely. They need they need offense. Everybody can get it. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how much he gets paid, though, because he's coming out of an enormous contract. All the controversy around him. Do you think? Do you think he's going to do it for a no one million dollars a year supply of cream and a recliner, <laughs> and Barry's will sign on the dotted line. All right, and that'll wrap things up for this edition of Extra Points. So for Rob Salomon, Ted Pickus, and Lincoln Bohm, I'm Steve Schuster saying good night, everyone, and go blue. CBN, FM, Ann Arbor. The sports department would like to thank you for your continued support of the University of Michigan Student Radio. Moss knocks over Tambellini, winds up and he scores! Just Tambellini lets a laser go from the near side circle, and the Wolverines take a 1 0 lead off the rocket, off the stick of Jeff Tambellini. Hey everybody, if you like soul, soul music, and funk, funk music, then join me, your host, Robert Wells, as I spin OG jams every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 p.m. on The Hop. Tune in and you can bet your bottom dollar you'll hear songs Stop playing the wall. Everybody do the hop. Every Wednesday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Only on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. So all America knows how to do is gossip. Well, welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And with the inside scoop on the Tomcat wedding, I'm Jim Dwyer. Yeah, Tomcat wedding and what other celebrities have been in the news? Oh, Michael Richards, Kramer, whatever his name is. Yeah. Never saw Seinfeld in my life. I know I've missed uh, out culturally for that uh, omission in my cultural education, but... Well, I don't know. Oh, well. That show hasn't really dated that well, I think. It's a show about nothing. Yeah. It's... uh. As Jerry Seinfeld once famously said, apparently. Well written, but it's uh, it's not The Simpsons. No. That's all you really need to watch is The Simpsons. That's all you need to watch. Well, I'm sure that Bush is eagerly watching his public approval ratings continue to go down. So that's why he keeps going out of the country. He's got a meeting coming up this week in uh, Jordan. And that uh, will probably prove to be uh, uneventful in the sense that I just don't get a sense at all that the Bush administration seriously has any real Iraq options uh, uh, under consideration. I think the study group is just a lot of hoopla and certainly isn't going to get to the heart of the problems in Iraq, which uh, just continue to be the decaying uh, 
security situation. I mentioned uh, last week that I'd just finished this book called The Occupation, War and Resisting, Resistance in Iraq by Patrick Coburn. And I do recommend this little slim volume because I think it gives it a, a lot of details about why uh, things went wrong there. Uh, well, some, and he's been there since the war began. So. Yeah, and it's interesting, for instance, that uh, he even observes uh, at one point in his book uh, about his disappointment in uh, Mr. Alawi uh, being named the successor government to the so-called uh, Occupation Authority, the CPA, uh, headed by Paul Bremer. And it's been well d documented that the Civilian uh, CPA uh, made two disastrous decisions, uh, one in terms of debathifying Iraq on the model of Germany and the other disbanding the military itself. Uh, the military itself, of course, contributed to part of the uh, insurgency. And I think that this civil war thing that's come up today is an interesting debate in semantics. Obviously, there's an element of Iraq now that is civil war, but uh, I always point out to the BBC experts that observe that there are 17 different insurgency groups in Iraq. So this is more like a gang. It's not a club. It's it's it's, it's a gang. It's it's a club, not a gang. Uh, that's a famous Saturday Night Live uh, spoof back in the day when Jimmy Carter went on his... Excursion to Mexico, and apparently got some Montezuma's revenge. Carter's back in the news, by the way, with a new book out. He's going to be on the talk show circuit this week. But it's interesting when he uh, talks about Alawi, and I'll just read a paragraph from this uh, memoir, because that's basically what it is. He writes, I was disappointed in the choice of Alawi for several reasons. My relations with Alawi and his Iraqi National Accord Party were frosty. In our book, Out of the Ashes, my brother Andrew and I described his close links to MI6 and the CIA. Intelligence officers from both organizations had for years shown touching faith in Alawi's abilities as a leader, belief wholly at odds with his record. Uh, we had given the first full account of his disastrous attempt to mount a military coup against Saddam Hussein in 1996. The Iraqi security forces had crushed it savagely even before it got off the ground. The military officers implicated in the plot were arrested, tortured, and killed. Abdul Karim al-Kabaridi, the Jordanian prime minister at the time, had a close-up view of what was happening since Alawi had moved to Amman to mastermind the coup attempt. He later told us that the Accords network were, quote, all penetrated by Iraqi security service. The reason I think that they were manipulated by Iraq intelligence is that nothing succeeded, nothing worked. And he goes on to talk about the narrow political base that Alawi essentially had. And, of course, these close connections to MI6 and CIA were probably why he was sort of the hand-picked selection of the Bush administration. And this, I think, further confirms the naivete and the... Um, just total inexperience that they really have at nation building. So, civil war, whatever you want to call it, obviously Thanksgiving Day saw one of the worst uh, single-day uh, car bombings of uh, some time, and uh, the uh, disaster in Iraq continues. Well, and it's worth pointing out at this point that uh, 
According to the United Nations figures, 3,709 Iraqi civilians were killed just in the month of October. And uh, that's a new high for a monthly uh, total of civilian dead. So things are uh, not going well. Uh, and as far as Bush going to Jordan, uh, he may want to uh, pack along some earplugs. We know he doesn't really like to listen to things that he doesn't want to hear anyway, but uh, his father, Bush the I, uh, recently in Abu Dhabi, um, had to hear from some uh, upset people. I'll just read this short item. Uh, former President George H.W. Bush took on Arab critics of his son Tuesday during a testy exchange at a leadership conference in the capital of this U.S. ally. A little weird there, just the fact that there's a leadership conference in Abu Dhabi, of all places. Uh, anyway, uh, Bush the first said, My son is an honest man. Bush yeah. told members of the audience, uh, harshly criticized the current U.S. Leadership, uh, leader's foreign policy. Quote, we do not respect your son, a woman in the audience bluntly told Bush after his speech. Bush, 82, appeared stunned as others in the audience whooped and whistled in approval. His his ratings are low here. They're even lower throughout the rest of the world. Yeah, and he's made a mess of the Middle East. And, of course, it's interesting that Bush Pear uh, is in the region probably doing some sort of preliminary uh, triage work for uh, Bush, the son, and yep. even apparently Dick Cheney uh, made a little turkey visit over in the region to consult allies because obviously the connections to Gates, Robert Gates and the first Bush, uh, Bush the pair, mm -hmm. and the Iraq study group itself, I mean, it does strike me as sort of a damage control unit. Um, and it will, of course, propose such mild um, solutions, quote-unquote, um, that it's not too likely that uh, they're going to really work. You know, the big glaring headline is that Iraq study group proposes aggressive diplomacy in the region. Earth-shattering advice. And, of course, something that uh, Bush's uh, son has ignored uh, throughout his presidency. And it's appropriate that uh, King Abdullah of Jordan was noting that the, the region is uh, pretty much on the verge of three civil wars. Uh, and, of course, he's referring to the Palestinian question, the ongoing deterioration in Lebanon and, of course, Iraq. Uh, didn't even mention Afghanistan, but I guess Afghanistan's not technically part of the Middle East. It just strikes me that... Um, yeah, the, the, fa the faith that this Iraq study group is going to come up with anything is just misguided. And, well, uh, and just the fact that the real news from that group is, as you said, you know, pursued diplomacy. I mean, such an obvious no-brainer yeah. that should have been ongoing and, uh, well, not likely to be taken seriously. But it sounds good to hear somebody say it. And so, yeah, it's window dressing to a large extent. Window dressing, indeed. Well, another book uh, that I just wanted to mention uh, quickly, uh, since I'm on the subject of books, and I don't know what else you've got. Certainly wanted to mention Robert Altman's passing briefly. But I've just finished, uh, I'm still on the footnotes, House of War, The Pentagon and the Disastrous Rise of American Power by James Carroll. 
This, by the way, won a National Book Award. And I can see why. It's an interesting um, analysis of the disastrous rise of the Pentagon. And it's uh, part memoir, part uh, sort of history. Uh, there's a variety of themes that run throughout it, but obviously it's the... Um, What's interesting about it is it's sort of a juxtaposition of many of the intellectual um, underpinnings of discussions of, of war and power and the destruction of war itself on cultures and uh, countries and whatnot. And when you have Howard Zinn and W.G. Sebald, for instance, being quoted extensively, uh, it's interesting, of course, that nuclear... Uh, War is, is one of the real interesting um, continuing subjects of this book, as well as the uh, intellectual critics of war policy itself. James Carroll's father was uh, the first director, apparently, of the DIA. He sort of got his involvement in uh, the apparatus of war during World War II. And he talks a little bit about the other 9-11s. And this is just fascinating coincidence, by the way. The Pentagon itself as a building broke ground on 9-11-1941 from the mud of the Potomac, <laughs> literally. Also on 9-11 in 1973, and we've detailed this before, the Chilean coup occurred. On September 11th, 1944, he writes, The Prince of Hesse, the principality in Wiesbaden, site of my one-time boyhood home, stood on a promontory of his property and fixed his eyes in the fixed direction of uh, Dart, uh, Darmstadt, 15 kilo kilometers distant. Quote, the light grew and grew until the whole of the southern sky was glowing, shot through with red and yellow. The prince was seeing allied bombings at work. It almost uh, seems certain that many more died that night from the action of airplanes than would be from airplanes arrowing into Wall Street and Hell's Bottom 57 years later. He goes in extensively, by the way, into the incendiary air bombing of uh, Germany and Japan uh, and the unbelievable civilian casualties that occurred as a result of that. Well, total war, as it was called. Total war. And we've talked about this problem of total war versus America's conundrum uh, ever since with these limited wars and the inability of America's uh, military uh, to impose political solutions on third world nations. Uh, there's just one failure after another. And then fascinating to learn that on September 11th, 1990, after uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, President H.W. Bush, in a speech before Congress, declared what he called a new world order, a phrase originating in Machiavelli, and which appears on the Latin $1 bill, as I've noted before. Mm -hmm. The purpose of his son, uh, Carol writes, would be to attempt to fulfill beginning exactly 11 years later. And, of course, it's this new world order that uh, is omitted from any really clear-sighted uh, discussion of the problem in Iraq. Uh, Iraq has effectively, now we're being told, been at civil war now for a couple of years, but it was the partitioning of Iraq effectively by, surprise, surprise, uh, MI6 and the CIA 
British and American foreign policy objectives throughout the 1990 that divided Iraq up into the um, sectarian violence that we're now seeing. Mm -hmm. And when you read about the literally hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq uh, internally displaced, people that are on the move every day fleeing this uh, carnage uh, and this internal violence that the American government has uh, not effectively brought under control, uh, you can just see why going into Iraq was uh, worse than a crime. It was a blunder. To quote a famous European diplomat. Interesting article over the weekend, too, about the problem of maintaining uh, any consistency with regards to electrical generators and uh, just, you know, the practical matters of day-to-day -day living in Baghdad, particularly but throughout Iraq in general. And, you know, these guys running generators, intermittently offering power to people in, in individual neighborhoods, this is a major failure and a major responsibility of the United States as occupying power to uh, kind of stabilize this. And, of course, it hasn't for a number of reasons, as we've uh, detailed numerous occasions on this show. Much of the money that has been sunk into Iraq has not been to make things any better for Iraqi civilians, but to, in fact, uh, establish and develop permanent military bases, including the luxurious splendor of Taco Bells, Dairy Queens, and what have you throughout the so-called green zone. And, of course, it's the concept of strategic bombing that uh, Carroll talks extensively about in his book as well. This, of course, uh, became a Pentagon idea during World War II and evolved into uh, just incredible uh, nuclear buildup in the 50s. Uh, Curtis LeMay was one of the original architects of this uh, theory. Uh, and it's uh, it's amazing, you know, when you learn, for instance, that the United States Army went from 250,000 in 1940 to 8.3 million in less than two years. Of course, 1940, uh, we are told that America had the 19th largest military on the planet, a little less than Belgium. Of course, that was in response to Pearl Harbor, but it is interesting to observe that the Pentagon was being built before Pearl Harbor. Roosevelt, of course, anticipating, I think, an eventual involvement in World War II for a variety of reasons. Um, Curtis LeMay, of course, is another figure throughout this book, as is the James Forrestal Secretary of Defense, who... Uh, Actually, was originally, I think, technically the first Secretary of Defense. Right, because it was at that time after the war, World War II, that the uh, Secretary of War became the Secretary of Defense, and we had that kind of Orwellian shift in terms. Um, now that America's foreign policy agenda was to be primarily aggressive uh, <clears throat> and interventionary, it had to be repositioned as defense. And, of course, Forrester oh. himself... Uh, very quickly went crazy um, and supposedly climbed out of a hospital window after he was, shall we say, admitted for exhaustion. Um, Truman asked for his resignation in early 1949, and he was replaced by the striped pants, Dean Acheson, <laughs> <laughs> um, who famously said that the Korean War saved us. Indeed it did, because throughout the Korean War, American military spending quickly quadrupled mm -hmm. in less than six months. 
By us, of course, he doesn't mean us, the American people. He means us, the military-industrial wing. Exactly. And, of course, the characters that you see throughout the entire uh, growth of the Pentagon's rise. James Carroll, uh, for a while, became involved in some of the peace movements opposing Vietnam and was involved, of course, in the Christian, um, left-wing Christian anti-war movement identified uh, with the Berrigans, and one of the Berrigans that was arrested for actually physically attacking nuclear weapons with blood as part of the Plowshares group uh, noted that the United States spent about $15 trillion on defense spending uh, from the end of World War II until, um, well, his opposition to nuclear war in the 70s and 80s. But it's a fascinating analysis, the book House of War by James Carroll, about all the presidents and their various policies and uh, the inherent disasters um, that came with each as the nuclear madness uh, continued. And, of course, at one point, the United States had well over 25,000 nuclear weapons and, of course, still has many uh, in operation today. And, of course, we get the fake uh, missile gap uh, business. We also get a fascinating uh, situation in uh, 1969 with Richard Nixon's new Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, consistently distorting a national intelligence estimate mm. regarding the, Soviet's Union, the Soviet Union's uh, policy of first strike. Interestingly, the DIA and the CIA had concluded that there was no first strike policy of the Soviet Union. But in order to uh, advance the cause of Henry Kissinger and the Pentagon, Laird uh, falsely testified to Congress to the contrary. So there are fascinating examples of how history uh, itself repeats itself over and over as uh, the Pentagon's disastrous rise continues to this day. And, of well, course, the new uh, head of the Pentagon will be... Uh, Robert Gates of Iran-Contra fame and one of the Bush, H.W. Bush's uh, loyal uh, soldiers in, uh, I don't know, protecting the president? When you base your policies on malfeasance and misrepresentation, I guess you shouldn't be too surprised when you end up with a handful of feces. <laughs> I was... Hoping you were going to say dust. <laughs> Didn't quite know where to go with that. It's the dinner hour, so we'll just, uh, yeah, dust. Dust is good. <laughs> uh, well, gee, where to go next? Um, uh, let me just do this one real quickly here, <clears throat> since this does relate to uh, the impression that uh, people outside the U.S. have about the U.S. And, of course, this impression is based on a number of things, uh, of course, amongst the factors at play here will be uh, U.S. foreign policy. But uh, this is quite an interesting little study here. Uh, this is an article entitled Visitors to U.S. Fear Border Checks More Than Terrorism by Edward Luce, and this appeared in the uh, Financial Times of last week, November 21st. International business travelers to the United States fear mistreatment at the hands of border officials more than they fear terrorism, according to a survey published yesterday. U.S. immigration and customs officials are viewed as arrogant, rude, unpredictable by foreign business travelers in a survey by the Discover America Partnership, 
a group of U.S. business leaders concerned about the impact on the economy, as well they should be uh, for this reason. Focusing on the type of respondent most likely to hold a favorable view of the U.S., so there you go, they're talking to people already kind of predisposed to be sympathetic to the U.S., this group and this study found that two-thirds of the 2011 people questioned thought the U.S., quote, the worst country in the world, close quote, in the way it treated foreign visitors at the border. Um, uh, here, uh, Jeff Freeman, uh, director of the Discover America Partnership, says, We deliberately sampled an elite group of business travelers who are more likely to feel positive toward the U.S. than most people in their own countries. All they are asking is to be treated with respect, professionalism, and courtesy. They are not asking for America to reduce its security measures. And here's an interesting statistic to close on. The number of foreigners visiting the United States has declined by 17% since the September 11 terror attacks, while business travel has declined by 10% in the past year. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of business, one other item, and then I think we want, you want to do a Robert Altman thing. Oh, but yeah. I've been sitting on this one for a while. The day after the uh, midterm elections. I thought you were going to talk about the various stampedes around the country. that. Uh, <laughs> well, there was a, an announced scarcity of toys, yeah. which is a complete falsehood. I mean, talk <laughs> about jerking the chains of the uh, confused Christmas shoppers. Uh, you can buy toys out of bubblegum machines these days. You can days. get them everywhere. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, here we go. Santa's uh, elves are busy at work as Indeed. we speak. In uh, labor camps in China, no doubt. That's where the elves are now working. But the day after the midterm elections, uh, the New York Times had this little supplement called the Corporate Social Responsibility, an advertising supplement in which <laughs> corporations take out full-page ads talking about how great they are and how much they care and how responsible they are. And uh, I was gleaning this for, you know, evidence of hypocrisy and so forth. And as I well as humor. As well <laughs> as humor. And, boy, I found one. So I've got to share this with the listeners. <clears throat> this is from the Chiquita Harvesting Efficiencies section. And uh, let's see here. Here's the quote. Chiquita has gone from being the Darth Vader to the Luke Skywalker of the banana world, observes Tensi Whalen, executive director of the Rainforest Alliance. Now, that blew my mind for a moment mm -hmm. to stop and think, what does it even mean to be the Darth Vader of the banana world? Indeed. Well, it's it's evil. <laughs> I know that. And, of course, Chiquita, you mentioned uh, Dean Adjison earlier, and, of course, the, uh, uh, what's the name of the guys uh, who were legal representatives for the, uh, oh, why can't I think of it? The Dulles Brothers? Dulles Brothers, yeah, were, of course, legal uh, representatives for United Fruit and a number of other agricultural concerns in uh, Central America. And the, uh, that drove American policy. Yeah. The corporate interests of these mega farms uh, and, you know, the, the banana republic, the concept of a banana republic, was based on uh, kind of U.S. economic uh, totalitarianism. Well, and fascinating to see that yet another uh, leftist government has been elected in Ecuador, a yeah. repudiation of banana uh, politics, so Indeed. to speak. Uh, and we will uh, see what happens uh, with this new uh, president-elect in Ecuador uh, that has pretty much vowed to uh, 
have a more assertive approach to America, American corporate hegemony and the exploitation of its people down there. These poverty issues, uh, besides working here at home uh, in the most recent elections to the detriment of the Republican Party, are certainly beginning to work against America in Latin America uh, in election after election, it seems. Speaking of one of the uh, <coughs> fallen from the election, I wanted to give out a brain damage award to George Allen, apparently as one of his last acts uh, in the Senate during this lame duck session. He apparently has introduced a bill that would allow carrying concealed weapons in national parks. Uh and this is to benefit whom? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I assume that you went into national parks for sort of the enjoyment of nature and peace, tranquility. Peace, tranquility, uh, visuals, I don't know, photography, uh, a c concealed weapon. I don't know what purpose <laughs> it would serve. But you never know when that wascally wabbit <laughs> needs to get plugged with 50 shots, perhaps. <laughs> A wrong turn at Albuquerque. And <laughs> you might Ended have to full of lead in Yosemite. <laughs> might have to plug him fifty times, uh, the way the uh, <coughs> NYPD apparently did uh, this past weekend with tragic results. Uh, speaking of another, well, it's not a tragedy, but it's uh, obviously uh, a passing of a noteworthy artist. Yeah, Robert Altman. You know, one of uh, America's, I think, near great directors. You know, I don't think he was on the par of uh, Stanley Kubrick or, you know... Uh, Kurosawa or Kurosawa, like you know, it, I, I, but I think he is one of the great uh, American directors of uh, cinema, and he's just got an outstanding body of work uh, throughout his uh, cinematic history. And I, I would particularly... You know, Godsford Park was outstanding, and I really liked The Player a lot, too. I thought The Player was quite good. Really yeah. good. Uh, shortcuts I enjoyed, too. But I wanted to highlight Nashville. I think that's a very underrated uh, Robert Altman movie that occasionally plays on um, cable television late at night. Highly recommended. Good old Channel 66 there. Because uh, Nashville's got that interesting political, cultural... Um, analysis that's well that came out in like 1976 77 yeah right? it, well it's listed as 75 but I remembered when I saw it in high school and obviously it was over my head so to speak in terms of not quite getting what was going on I was sort of confused and couldn't figure out all these all these characters and uh, many of the movies today it's it strikes me are homages to Robert Altman's style mm -hmm. at some mm -hmm. level uh, of course MASH uh, was turned into probably that rare thing where the TV series may have been better than the movie. Though the movie itself was certainly outstanding. And uh, But I, I wanted to talk about Nashville, and that I, that's one of those movies that I highly recommend uh, listeners to see when they get a chance, just because it's got a lot of stuff that I think foreshadows uh, the Carter and Reagan years and the... Uh, even H. Ross Perot and that strange third party that's throughout the the, uh, the the picture and all the strange characters in Nashville, Tennessee itself, uh, trying to make a living and, you know, having their scams and all the interesting human elements of Robert Altman's movies. Yeah, I wanted to mention, too, um, not a very well-known film. In fact, one that I, I haven't even seen myself, but that I'm quite curious about and look forward to an opportunity to see, called Secret Honor, 
which was apparently filmed right here in Ann Arbor. It's uh, sort of a very small movie about uh, Richard Nixon. And, um, you know, I regret that I am not able to really say much about it, but it is interesting that he filmed it here, and it's a sort of a one-man show uh, kind of a film about Nixon's uh, paranoia. Yeah, and it's it's listed as being made in 1984, a period when all 